0: Issues to do with the dangers to liberal democracy posed by religion have become central concerns in both public life and its polemics, and also in philosophical debate in the last 20 years, especially in the, in the 10 years of the new century, or 12 years of the new century. This is partly because of the apparent increase in the impact of religious outlooks upon liberal democracies that had felt relatively secure from them because of a supposed and often real decline in religiosity within most of those countries. The political successes of the religious right in the United States and the terrorist attacks upon democratic states from within and without, as well as the arrival of large numbers of refugees and migrants from conflicted states in Asia and the Middle East who carry often unusual religious identities, are only three of the factors involved. In rough concert with these developments, there has arisen a great volume of writings by philosophers, political theorists, theologians and public controversialists uh, a lot of which, I'm sorry to say, has only recently come to my attention. I thought I was cutting much more virgin territory than as turned out to be the case, which is both consoling and depressing. Um, uh, all of these addressing themselves to the dangers and sometimes benefits that religion poses in the public arena. The problem has produced a variety of solutions and counter-solutions, uh, as well as some scepticism about the underlying concern. Those who want to minimise sharply the role of religion in politics and public life, uh, and the public life of democracies, I shall call... Oh. (laughs) I won't call them that. Oh, sorry, wrong gauge. Yeah, that's all. (laughs) Uh, I shall call... uh, uh, Restrictionists. They include Robert Audi, John Rawls, Bruce Ackerman, Jürgen Habermas, Amy Gutmann and many others all of whom disagree among themselves about the exact solution, but agree in aiming to, as it were, restrict or neutralise the impact of religion in public life. On the other side are what I shall call inclusionists, such as Nicholas Volterstaff, Nancy Rosenblum, uh, Brian McGraw, Paul Whiteman, Michael Perry and many others, with again a difference of degree and diversity in their positions. In addition, there are the new atheists, such as Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris and their friends, who press the polemical case fiercely for the dangers of religion, not merely to liberal democracy, but virtually the entire world. As the late Christopher Hitchens put it, religion poisons everything. In fact, they say very little, uh, the new atheists, about the role that religion should have in public life, perhaps because they think it should have no role in anything. It's only worth noting in this connection that restrictionists need not be hostile to religion in this way. Indeed, at least one of them, Robert Audi, uh, is a practising Protestant Christian who has written defences of various religious positions in natural theology. And Rawls sees a positive role for religion in society beyond the restrictions that he seeks to apply. The role of religion in public life seems to me a large and uh, a good deal of this debate I'm going to be addressing in the next lecture and the one after. Though some of it impinges here. The role of religion in public life seems to me a large, complex and difficult question and I hope to make some progress on it during these lectures. Here I want to prepare some of the ground for that discussion and address in particular the issue of the dangers of religious commitment because what we say of that will have some obvious implications for how religion should be treated in the public arena. Some of the answers will be relevant to any political society but I'll concentrate upon the relevance to liberal democratic societies. What is religion? There is a good deal of opacity about the concepts of religion and of politics. Debates range among scholars about how to define religion. Uh, I've done it again. I think I'll put this one away. <laughs> uh, debates rage among scholars about how to define religion, and no consensus has been reached or appears likely. It often seems that religion is in part a portmanteau word into which a great many diverse forms of thought, norms and behaviour have been untidily packed. Confusion about the nature of religion is very understandable, but we need to make some progress in clarification in order to get on with the topic. There are several ways of responding to the apparent impasse in defining religion. One promising move is to develop a family resemblance story about the concept of religion, as has been tried by such theorists as John Hick. Another is to abandon hope of any comprehensive mapping of the ordinary concept, even with the aid of family resemblance, and simply stipulate a concept of religion that differentiates it from politics and other domains, so we could insist upon a belief in God or gods, or even simply in monotheism. This is roughly the strategy adopted by Dan Dennett. In spite of Dennett's invocation of scientific analogies from biology, this wouldn't, I think, be good anthropology but it might have a more limited utility in the discussion of violence and other matters in relation to some central forms of religion. Another option, again, is to offer a reasonably comprehensive definition, realising that any definition is going to have some stipulative elements. In terms of distinctive practices, as is done by Martin Reesbrot in his interesting book The Promise of Salvation, A Theory of Religion, he gives a sort of definition predominantly in terms of characteristic action rather than belief. Quote, Religion is based on communication with superhuman powers and is concerned with warding off misfortune, coping with crises, and laying the foundation for salvation. (coughs) Elsewhere, he says, according to this definition, religion is a complex of practices that are based on the premise of the existence of superhuman powers, whether personal or impersonal, that are generally invisible, unquote. This definition, in terms mostly of practice, actually accords with much in religious tradition. Witness, for example, the definition of pure religion, quoted um, earlier, except I didn't quote it, I left that bit out, uh, from St James' epistle, uh, in which uh, James emphasises the practice of charity, uh, looking after widows and so on, as the basis of pure religion, the essence of pure religion. Though this is consistent with a role for doctrine and theology, it's interesting that so much philosophy of religion tends to ignore the significance of the practical core of religion, except when looking at deleterious effects. A further radically different manoeuvre is to deconstruct the concept so as to abandon the idea that religion can be defined, or even sufficiently demarcated to make the claim that it has a special tendency to violence or anything else tenable. This radical strategy will be examined more fully below, and quite apart from more general worries I have about deconstructionist strategies, I'll try to give specific reasons for rejecting it. I will not here decide between versions of the other strategies, but I will proceed by reliance upon certain obvious paradigms, uh, but hopefully showing (coughs) some respect for what do not seem to me and to most of my likely audience the less obvious. This will leave a good deal open, but will involve rejecting such common moves as describing communism or nationalism as religions in any but a metaphorical sense. These moves spread the concept of religion too widely to be useful in a focused discussion of our topic. Of course, even the clear paradigms of our topic, such as Christianity and Islam, can be disputed. Some have insisted that Christianity, for example, is misunderstood today when treated as a religion. This is the message contained, if somewhat elusively, in Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Prison Letters. And other claimants to the status of religion differ markedly from such paradigms. Buddhism, for instance, is widely recognised as a religion, but amongst its many denials, major forms of it deny the existence of God. The concept of politics is more more problematic than it seems at first blush too, since it's often applied across a wide variety of areas, such in universities, churches, clubs, families, and at the extreme in such slogans from the 60s as the personal is the political. It's used neutrally, but also approvingly, and often pejoratively, as in the expressions used even by politicians themselves, such as playing politics, applied only to their opponents, or in the pleas, let's put politics aside. I won't explore these complexities further here, but rather take as central examples of politics the operations of those institutions, organisations, discussions, pressure groups and struggles that are concerned with national, state or regional government. My focus will be on liberal democratic politics, though some of the problems discussed have relevance to any polity. Got it that time. The dangers of religion. But although dangers to civil peace, especially those of violence, are prominent amongst intellectuals and common folk who worry about the issue... There are other dangers that also loom large, especially for political theorists who address the question from the perspective of the normative attributes essential to a liberal democracy. These are questions to do with the sort of moral respect that citizens in such democracies owe to one another in their procedures, including public reasoning bearing upon common public decisions and enactments, especially those requiring coercion. These issues are often understandably discussed in terms of a value of citizen autonomy and disrespect. Uh, Sorry, and the disrespect supposedly involved in believers seeking to impose coercion upon non-believers by recourse to the tenets of their faith. In a television discussion about abortion recently, a leading Australian feminist journalist, this was in Australia, uh, of somewhat pugnacious character, objected on television to the leader of the Federal Opposition, Tony Abbott, an equally pugnacious conservative Catholic, "'Keep your rosaries off my ovaries.' I should add that the comment was not intended as a literal response to a literal proposal. As for the dangers of religion, it's wise to avoid oversimplification. We must not assume, as it is easy to do, that because something is dangerous, it is bad or to be entirely avoided. Many good things are dangerous in certain contexts... As we're constantly warned by the medical profession these days, alcohol is dangerous, even though it could certainly be argued that the the consumption of alcoholic beverages like wine and beer is both pleasurable and important ingredient in sociability and in moderation, even health-promoting. Many beneficial medicines are also dangerous and carry warnings about circumstances in which the dangers can be realised. Indeed, for some people in some circumstances, medicines themselves can be fatal. Goods like freedom, travel, exercise, sport and authority all carry dangers with them and can be poisonous, to use Hitchens' phrase about religion, in some common circumstances. The adversarial legal system is certainly dangerous because it allows for many criminals to escape justice and return to the community. Some of these are dangerous people, but most of us regard the merits of the system to be such that they outweigh even such great risks. So it may be with religion. There's a tendency amongst political theorists, understandably concerned, with the stability of liberal democracies and dangers to that stability, to seek entirely risk-free solutions to the problems those dangers pose. This is an important motive behind so much very restrictive and intrusive legislation and regulation introduced to combat the threat of terrorism. But many of these measures are counterproductive, in that they threaten the very liberties and even stability they aim to protect. As Sir Ken MacDonald, Britain's former top prosecutor, who was appointed in 2010... To give independent oversight to the review of the country's counter terrorism and security powers, said, The promise of total security uh, is an an illusion that would destroy everything that makes living worthwhile. Some risks are worth running in order to enjoy liberty. Of course, if religion has few or no good effects, then any analogy with our need to tolerate risks in the items listed above will fail. But this remains to be seen. A further preliminary point that I'm not going to assume is that I'm not going to assume or argue that any religion or any particular religion is true or false, nor will I assume or argue that any of it is rational, irrational, or non-rational. At least not at this point. Though I will later say something about the significance of that issue for the topic. A second important preliminary point is that the issue of religion's dangers is misleading in its sweeping generality, particularly given a great array of things covered by the term religion, as we noted above. It may be that some religions are dangerous and others are not, and some are very dangerous and others only slightly so. Uh, It may be that religion was dangerous in the past but is no longer, or that it wasn't dangerous in the past but is now. Uh, It may be that some forms of religion, including some forms of the same religion, are dangerous and others not. Of course there are many permutations of these possibilities with respect to time place degree and particular religious features Quite apart from speculations of the just so variety about the evolutionary mechanisms that give rise to religion there can be no doubt that religions evolve but their intellectual aspects and both in their intellectual aspects and lived practice This is true not only of the development of new religions but also of ancient or traditional religions It's a curious fact that many critics of religion whose own standpoint is as defenders of the idea of evolution, tend to treat religions as static and monolithic entities, thus echoing those conservative defenders of religion who would like such stasis to be the norm. Nonetheless, a blanket worry about the dangers of virtually all religion (coughs) is a phenomenon of popular anxiety, supported by much past and present violence and instability with a religious dimension. Let us then begin by examining some characteristic defects claim to be typical of religion. Its critics, and many of its adherents and supporters, point to several things. The first is an inherent tendency to violence fuelled by absolutism and or fanaticism. Two, a tendency to subordinate reasoned moral and political positions to something else, such as the supposed commands of God or some other superhuman or supernatural source, obedience to religious authority, or respect for inspired texts. Three, a lack in religious people of a significant sort of autonomy and disrespect for it as a significant value in, in their fellow citizens. Four, a tendency in believers to denigrate the beliefs and values of those outside their religion and thereby to seek to diminish the role of such outsiders in the common political order in order to favour their own values and beliefs. This is the issue of divisiveness and intolerance. A tendency Five, a tendency to demean the good things of this world by subordination of them to the good things of the next. Six, a tendency to bad health outcomes, especially psychological ones, notably guilt. Maybe there are more, and maybe there is a degree of overlap, certainly a degree of overlap in the categories, but this will do uh, for our discussion. Partly because of time, partly because it's less directly relevant to politics, I'll say nothing about six, other than to note, as Dan Dennett concedes, that there are some serious social science results, appearing to show that some religious commitment is on the whole good for health. Of the other items on this list, it's probably the first that most exercises people, and it's most relevant to the relation between politics and religion, so I will address it first and at greatest length.
1: The second (coughs) has
0: been a persistent political complaint, perhaps especially with regard to Roman Catholics, and it links to issues about public reason that I shall address in Lecture 2. The violence debate and Kavanaugh's myth. Let me begin with one and the argument of the American theologian uh, Bill Kavanaugh, uh, which I have correctly got up there, who has argued that the sharp separation of religion from other areas of human life, uh, most uh, extensively in his recent book, uh, The Myth of Religious Violence, uh, he has argued that that separation is a peculiarly modern and mostly Western phenomenon. Consequently, much of the evidence for the violent propensities of religion is drawn from contexts in which motivations for the violence are multifaceted and what would now be called religion, according to him, merely is merely one integrated ingredient in a motive set. This integration continues today in societies that have not embraced secularity in the way that most European societies have. This integration, combined with the more general difficulties in defining religion, lead Kavanaugh to a sweeping dismissal of the intelligibility of claims about the tendencies of religion towards violence, that encapsulated in the title of his book. His final position is a little elusive, but it seems to be that our understanding of the idea of religion is so opaque that claims about the dangers of religion are too lacking in precision to be coherent. He doesn't, of course, deny that there are particular faiths, such as Christianity and Islam, but the construct religion is a sort of mask for political projects and power plays against those convenient others who are rejected by the purveyors of a modern literal secularist outlook, liberal secularist outlook. Whatever we think of Kavanaugh's analytic rejection of the religion concept, the integration argument is, I think, detachable from his more sweeping claim and more plausible. To take the terrorist activities of contemporary Islamic fundamentalists as simply a manifestation of religion, for instance, is to ignore the way that their religious commitments complement and intersect with political outlooks and grievances that would make perfect sense to non-religious people, even though they seldom bother to examine such motivations, convinced in advance that the cause of the violence is wholly or predominantly religious. But as Robert Papers argued an An Examination of the Motives and Background of Suicide Bombers from 1980 to 2003, total of 315 attacks, excluding those commissioned by states, shows that religion is seldom a significant factor in the motivations. As Pape sums up his conclusions, the data shows that there is little connection between suicide terrorism and Islamic fundamentalism, or any one of the world's religions. Rather, what nearly all suicide terrorist attacks have in common is a specific secular and strategic goal, to compel modern democracies to withdraw military forces from territory that the terrorists consider to be their homeland. Religion is rarely the root cause, so it's often used as a tool by terrorist organisations in recruiting and other efforts in service of the broader strategic objective. Now, Pape does not claim that religion plays no part in the creation of suicide bombers, but his statistical analyses and exploration of personal and political histories uh, indicate that where operative it's usually supportive of the other, more central factors, such as foreign occupation of a homeland or military and financial support of an oppressive regime, that are basically political and often nationalistic. Similar scepticism about prevailing views regarding the predominant role of religious faith in generating contemporary suicide bombing and terrorism has been expressed by the anthropologist Scott Atran, uh, who is explicitly an atheist, who says in his book Talking to the Enemy that his extensive investigations, including many interviews with terrorists themselves, show that, quote, Islam and religious ideology per se aren't the principal causes of suicide bombing and terror In today's world. Indeed, a recent study of the Thirty Years' War by the historian Peter Wilson argues that even this conflict, so emblematic of a purely or predominantly religious war, was quote, not primarily a religious war at all. There were of course religious elements in it, since it could hardly have been otherwise in seventeenth century Europe, where Christian faith was an aspect of life integrated to varying degrees with other aspects. But most contemporary observers spoke of imperial Bavarian, Swedish, or Bohemian troops, not Catholic or Protestant. Similar scepticism about prevailing views regarding the predominant role of religious faith in generating contemporary suicide bombing and terrorism has been expressed by Scott Antron, who says in his book, "Have I repeated this?" Uh, no. I who says in his book, uh, "Talking to the enemy." but his extensive investigations, including many interviews with terrorists themselves, show that Islam and religious ideology per se aren't the principal causes of suicide bombing and terror in today's world. Although such findings, if valid, support one aspect of Kavanaugh's critique, they do so at some cost to his more sweeping claims. They support the idea that for many cultures, religion is closely interwoven with other aspects of life, that the isolation of religion as as uniquely prone to violence is hazardous if not downright implausible for at least some of the examples standardly used to promote this idea. On the other hand, the results rely on the falsity of Kavanaugh's stronger thesis, that the difficulties of defining religion make talk of religion so essentially opaque that there can be no point to claims that religion has a tendency to violence or to anything else. For these enterprises, you need to identify religion in order to show that it is having less effect and significance than usually believed. So I would reject the stronger thesis and Kavanaugh's associated claim that only in modern post-Enlightenment liberal societies can religion be distinguished from politics at all. In the foundational Christian documents, Christ is famously portrayed as saying, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. This text has resonated through Christian tradition precisely in connection with issues about the proper relation of Christianity to the political order. Medieval discussions of church-state relations no doubt tended to claim rather a lot as God's or the Pope's provenance, but they were sensitive to problems of demarcation and jurisdiction. So if Christianity is a religion, then Kavanaugh's strong thesis must be false, even if a weaker version of it is true. I'll omit a a brief discussion of... uh, similar issues to do with Islam. Another problematic feature of Kavanaugh's critique is his tendency to brand liberal politics with a a series of unpleasant tendencies that mirror the simplifications that he rightly detects in many of those critics who regard religion as essentially violence-prone. In his attempts to debunk what he views with some plausibility as the self-righteousness or unself-critical assumptions of passionate secularists and liberals, Kavanaugh speaks of contemporary liberal democratic states as if they are inevitably colonialist, militarist, and even totalitarian. In this he echoes many other theologians who seem to think that a hostility to the very idea of the secular state and to the liberalism that often accompanies it are required by their commitment to religion. This seems to me to be to embody a profound mistake. It arises in part from a focus on the policy excesses of a few nations, notably the United States, especially in its foreign policy blunders. Most of the theologians with these tendencies are, in fact, American, and ignores the generally more benign foreign policy activities of smaller democracies like the Scandinavian states. It also misreads, to a significant extent, the considerable human and even religious benefits of liberal democracies and the nature of their evolution. Freedom from religious domination and politics in the extreme form of theocracies and milder forms such as confessional states has certainly been part of the movement towards modern liberal democracies, but this should be seen as a particular expression of a drive against domination more generally. The development of modern democracy is a growth in the idea of governing power being sourced from below rather than above, and the liberal aspect of this consists in striving for protections of individuals, and for that matter groups, from abusive, domineering power. This indeed involved rejection of certain religiously flavoured claims and practices, such as the divine right of kings, and the persecution of heretics but also involved the protection of religious rights such as freedom of worship and promulgation of religious ideas. The rejection was unequivocally a good thing for the development of religion as have been, perhaps more equivocally, the liberal protections. Certainly the drive against oppressive state power and the creation of liberal protections have created space not only for a variety of religious people to practice their religions unhindered but also for various theologians to express freely their dissatisfaction with the a-religious climate around them. Those theologians, uh, like some feminists who rail against liberalism, individualism and rights, seem to me mostly to be cutting off their noses despite their faces. Uh, What can be learned from Kavanaugh uh, and Pape is that common claims about the inherent or unique tendency... uh, I'll actually skip this one... uh, and unique tendency of religion to promote violence are to be taken with substantial grains of salt. Grievances and ambitions of all sorts tend to produce violence and what is called religion will sometimes be an element in those grievances and ambitions. Sometimes it will be a weightier element than other times. Sometimes it will be minor or absent altogether. The absence of religion as a factor from some of the most ghastly outbreaks of violence in history must be viewed as a balancing consideration against those conflicts that seem to have a predominantly religious flavour. This was the bit I skipped. Uh, The the appalling massacres by atheistic totalitarians such as uh, Stalin, Pol Pot, Adolf Hitler have nothing to do with religion, though it's worth noting that critics of religion have some difficulty accepting this fact. It's common for them to treat such ugly ideologies as actually somehow forms of religion. Christopher Hitchens bolsters the case for the extent of religiously inspired violence by claiming that the communist and Nazi totalitarianisms and others like them were actually forms of religion. He says, A political scientist or anthropologist would have little difficulty in recognising what the editors and contributors of the god that failed put into such immortal secular prose. Communist absolutists did not so much negate religion in societies that they well understood was saturated with faith and superstition, as seek to replace it. This echoes a common response to the excesses of communism, fascism and much else, Namely, to note features of the ideologies that have similarities to what are more normally called religions, and thereby bring those ideologies within the orbit of condemnations of religion proper, thus showing that religion is responsible for much more than you might think. The same move is made sometimes via the idea of absolutism, as suggested by that quote from Hitchens. So it's admitted that Hitler, Mao, etc. had mindsets that led to their dreadful acts of immoral murder, torture and repression but that's credited to their quasi-religious absolutism. Yet we're given very little indication of what this absolutism is and how it leads to the violent consequences. Absolutism is also invoked in connection with some other dangers of religion, such as uh, what I listed as three, the bigotry and denigration of outsiders. So the, worth, the idea is worth some brief attention. We're all opposed to absolutism in the sense of unconstrained political power, but the charge against religion seems more an epistemological one at heart. It's the idea that those termed termed absolutists regard themselves as having total certainty attaching to some one or other of their beliefs. But unless one embraces some form... Unless one embraces uh, some form of epistemological relativism, this is the position, as G.E. Moore famously showed, that all of us are in. Most of us in this room have absolute convictions that we have heads that we're in Oxford, that we are, some of the time, listening to a speaker, and so on. Moving to less mundane examples, most of us are absolutely sure that democracy is better than fascist dic- dictatorship as a form of government, that the Holocaust really happened and that it was grossly wrong treatment of Jews, that the rise of modern science is on the whole a very good thing, that logical reasoning is mo- mostly better than guesswork, and so on. As modern liberal, absolutely liberals absolutely and correctly convinced of the importance of tolerance as a value and the merit in context of sceptical attitudes, many Western intellectuals don't like to think of themselves as having deeply rooted and settled convictions, but their tolerance and mild scepticisms would be impossible without deep fixed convictions such as those on the list. In this sense we are all absolutists. There's another sense of absolutism to do with moral absolutism that I'm going to skip. Against this, it might be objected that the problem with religion is not that the faithful have deep convictions, but that they are fanatical in pursuit of them. This seems the real core of the allegation of absolutism. Again, there is some complexity in assessing the nature of fanaticism, which can be a mere term of abuse, the application of which tends to be more in the eye of the beholder than anchored to clear criteria. In this, it's much like the application of stubborn, whereby your behaviour evokes the adjective stubborn and my own identical actions evoke instead from me the description resolute. Nonetheless, although we should be cautious in throwing the term around, there's a real phenomenon of fanaticism, and it's a disturbing one. The Oxford Shorter Dictionary defines it in terms of, quote, an excessive zeal or enthusiasm, especially for an extreme cause, and it mentions religion and politics as areas where the term is commonly in play. The two key qualifiers here are excessive and extreme and their application is clearly open to debatable judgement in context. Is someone who shows uncommon enthusiasm for abolishing the practice of enslaving women for prostitution a fanatic? Both excessive and extreme express negative evaluations, one on a disproportionate degree of enthusiasm or dedication, and the others on the wrongness or dubiousness of a cause. Unusual acts of singular dedication may make many of us who lead cosy and regular lives feel uncomfortable but they're not thereby fanatical in this pejorative sense. Father Damien de selfless life of service to the leper colony on the island of Molokai was a dedicated commitment that is not for everyone, but it's not thereby fanatical. British politicians thought Mahatma Gandhi a fanatic for his campaign of non-violent resistance to imperial rule in India, but that expresses their bias rather than objective judgment of his cause and methods. This is not to deny that religions have been involved in fanaticism, but fanaticism is a feature of the implementation of belief systems generally, as is evident in the zealous prosecution of their cause by free-market ideologues in the recent history of capitalism, not to mention the more dangerous fanaticisms sometimes involved in 19th-century imperialism and 20th-century totalitarianism. Some forms of fanaticism do not involve bad causes, but rather a distorted pursuit of good ones, and here they're connected in complex ways with the phenomenon of moralism that I've explored elsewhere, particularly what I've called the moralism of misplaced emphasis. Thereby, there I can give a plug for my book, Messy Morality, which has this discussion in it. But surely it will be said, fanaticism is more like a more likely feature of outlooks that claim the authority of God for their beliefs and practices than those without such recourse. Again, this raises the question of the necessity of theism for religion, but leaving that aside, it does seem plausible, that people who are confident in the Almighty's support could be spurred to excessive determination in their pursuit of objectives they regard as divinely endorsed. Certainly the fanatical Father Damien attributed... Sorry, the non-fanatical Father Damien attributed his steadfast dedication to the welfare of the lepers to his conviction that God had guided him to this role. So if someone wrongly thinks God wants them to pursue some evil path, they may do so with determined energy. It's true that the invocation of God's support has often been a spur to fanaticism. But two considerations somewhat soften the force of this argument. The first is that utilising God in an unworthy cause is a form of blasphemy, a manipulation of the Most High, which should be condemned on religious grounds. From Within Christianity, take one example, there is plenty of scope to caution against the invocation of God on behalf of our determined pursuit of objectives that cause harm to others. The Christian needs to be alert, not only to false prophets elsewhere, but to assuming that role himself. So invoking God on behalf of fanaticism can equally be met by appealing to God against it. And and indeed, this has often enough happened in the history of Christianity. I go on to discuss the example of the theological opposition from the likes of the bishop theologian uh, Las Casas in uh, Spain, uh, to the ravages of uh, Spanish conquistadors in South America. very interesting episode that illustrates that, but I'll omit that here for reasons of time. Secondly, some despoilers with non-religious ideologies seem to have had as much fanatical drive as any religious enthusiasts when it comes to the spectacular resorts to violent persecution as the history of the 20th century abundantly illustrates. Stalin and Mao, as already noted, did well enough in the fanaticism stakes without resort to divine assistance. It seems rather that support from whatever it is you regard as the highest value or sanction, be it history, ethnicity, science, the proletariat, the nation, super race, manifest destiny or even liberty, will do to drive some fanatical enterprise, especially where it coheres with the usual human instinct for power, glory and riches. I turn now to the second danger distinguished at the beginning, obedience to authority. This criticism is sometimes made from the perspective that only religious people rely upon authority for their beliefs and actions. But any religious reliance upon authority must be viewed against the background of the widespread reliance upon authority that is a feature of the human condition and a striking feature of the human epistemological landscape. I've argued for this in my book, Testimony, which explores the depth and necessity of our reliance on the word of others quite generally. A large number of other philosophers have since explored the theme. Of course, relying on the word of God or of religious authorities is a very special case, but the point that needs to be kept in mind is that reliance upon authority exists in a complex relation with reliance upon critical judgement and experience wherever it occurs. Most of us rely wholeheartedly and somewhat blindly upon the expertise of scientists, especially applied technical scientists, but we occasionally deploy critical intelligence, even in connection with our own computers and home appliances. And some do this more than others. The same is true of religion. There is abundant evidence that the dictates of religious authority are weighed against rational argument, experience and peer pressure, and are often set aside or ignored uh, by uh, the devoutly religious. Critics of religion pay far too much attention to the proclamation of religious authorities and pressure groups related to them, and far too little to facts about the behaviour and beliefs of religious people. Recent surveys in the United States show that the official Vatican line on contraception and abortion has very little influence upon what Catholics think, 85, or remarkably little. 85% of American Catholic voters approve of government-funded programs that promote and provide contraception to women without health insurance, And 62% of Catholic voters believe that improving access to contraception is a better way of reducing the number of abortions than passing more restrictive abortion laws. Given the general perception of Catholics as doctrinally opposed to both contraception and abortion and committed to rolling back Roe v. Wade in America, both these figures tell a remarkable story. Since both the Catholic hierarchy and much of the vocal evangelical leadership in the United States are totally opposed to abortion in any circumstances, A poll conducted by the US Conference of Catholic Bishops is also revealing, although notably the bishops did nothing to publicise the results and indeed have not made the full results of their poll publicly available. This showed that only 11% of US citizens in that very religious nation supported a total ban on abortion. Recent Gallup poll figures have shown that 40% of Catholics compared to 41% of non-Catholics found abortion morally acceptable. Of those surveyed, even 24% of regular churchgoers uh, amongst Catholics agreed that abortion was morally acceptable, and 52% of non regular church attending Catholics found it so. Interestingly, 53% of regular church going Catholics and 70% of the non regular supported the moral acceptability of medical research using stem cells obtained from human embryos, which is under a Vatican ban. On other controversial moral issues, the gap between church authorities and the Catholic faithful was just as striking, or even more so, on homosexual relations. Forty-four percent of regular Catholic churchgoers found them morally acceptable, and fifty-three of them, fifty-three percent of them, agreed that heterosexual relations outside of marriage were morally acceptable. The percentage in both cases were higher among non-regular church-going Catholics: sixty-one and seventy-seven, respectively. Outside the United States, the situation. Uh, is certainly similar, if not more dramatic, uh, certainly in European Catholic countries and in a good deal of South America. I've got actually got some figures on that. I should not want to give the impression that there's a total divide between clergy and laity on such matters. There's an understandable reluctance among church leaders to admit to internal disagreements, but it's clear that a very large proportion of Catholic priests and religious reject the official teaching on contraception. The use of condoms to minimise the spread of AIDS has been an interesting index of such dissent for not only have religious nuns working in Africa dissented from the official line, but recently several European bishops have rejected Pope Benedict's condemnation of the use of condoms to prevent transmission of HIV. The situation with abortion is less clear, but similar internal dissent within the ranks of Catholic authorities is probable, if less public. I cite these facts and figures not to determine what's right or wrong about the issues, though it would be disingenuous not to declare... That my own views mostly lie with the dissenters, but to stress that the monolithic picture of Catholics and more generally people of faith determining moral stances purely by resort to religious authority is a gross distortion. So, this danger is an exaggerated one, and I'll have more to say about its significance in my next lecture on the role of religious reasons in public life. It's likely that the migration from church authority, indicated by the surveys above, has accelerated in recent times within the Catholic Church but it was always present in some degree especially in the political order and was probably more pronounced in the many centuries before the Reformation The Counter-Reformation naturally tried to eliminate diversity and independence within the Catholic community or at least to create the appearance of uniformity of belief and practice as a defensive measure against the reformers These efforts were were redoubled by the 19th and 20th century attempts to portray the Church as a last bastion against a rising tide of unbelief and scepticism about religion and about the political privileges enjoyed by the Church. Indeed, it could be argued that the strength of lay subservience to clerical authoritarianism in the period between the Vatican Councils I and II was probably quite atypical of Catholic tradition, though the image it projected understandably had a lasting negative effect on the thinking of outsiders. Divisiveness and intolerance I turn now briefly to consider 4. The tendency to divisiveness is less alarming and dramatic than the violence issues discussed under 1, but it can pose serious difficulties for civic harmony and welfare and could be a contributing factor in outbreaks of violence. My strategy initially has some has some similarities with that I employed in the discussion of violence. Again, there can be no doubt that religious identifications have given rise to civic disharmony in a variety of ways and continue to do so. But again, it seems superficial to attribute all the causative significance of the disturbances to religious factors alone. What seems basically at issue is the investment that people have in deep identities. Religion is often involved in such identities, but is seldom exhaustive of them. People with the same religion, but different ethnic or racial backgrounds, can be as exclusive or prejudiced against each other as people with different religious orientations. Some of the conflicts in the Sudan illustrate this, since some of the problems that have produced so much disharmony and violence in that sad country arise from conflicting attitudes between Arab and African Muslims. The common reaction, the common religion is an ineffective antidote to the ethnic animosities. In this case, the outcome of the mix is bad, but there are particular historical, economic and cultural circumstances that help to explain that. In other contexts, the outcome of the mix can be good. The fact that Muslim migrants to a multicultural society like Australia come from a variety of national and ethnic backgrounds has been argued by one sociologist of religion, Gary Balmer, to explain why Islamic people in Australia, by and large, have settled in so well. Their different ethnic backgrounds mean that they don't identify so strongly with each other as to create a widespread religio-political ethnic identity that draws upon historic grievances to set them apart in a hostile stance from the host community. This suggests that distinctiveness and difference between different groups uh, in the community is not simply to be identified with divisiveness in a malign sense. Some people do indeed think that a certain uniformity of belief, allegiance and practice is socially desirable, and they consider all sorts of differences, especially those concerned with value, dangerous to such conformity. But I shall take it that the restrictionist critics I mentioned earlier are all liberal democrats of a sort, who more or less enthusiastically accept the abiding fact and even the value of difference in outlook within pluralistic democratic societies, and would wish there was more of it in other societies. Of course, they usually put some limits on the value of difference, and often those limits relate to contexts in which difference creates dangers to civil peace or the legitimate well-being of citizens. Something like Mill's harm principle and constitutional principles themselves act as constraints upon the valuing of difference, so once more, the idea of the danger of beliefs or practices or differences in them comes to the fore. I'm here going to omit a section uh, on tolerance and what the nature of tolerance. Uh, though I can talk about that if people want. Um, one thing that the divisiveness issue raises is the great change in attitude to religious differences that has gathered force and forth gathered force. In the latter part of the 20th century a change associated with the ecumenical movement the new atheists are inclined to see this and other softening tendencies in modern religions especially christianity as retreat or abandonment of genuine religion so they then hopefully concentrate their attacks upon those reactionary or rigid religious tendencies which they see as repellent but more authentic no doubt some of this change in the direction of greater charity and acceptance on the part of religions has been produced by external factors such as the need to join forces against real or perceived non-religious or anti-religious tendencies in the modern world, and a fuller realisation of the evils that exclusion and division can support. But it's certainly arguable that much of the impetus for these changes arises out of elements that were already present long before in mainstream religions themselves. These elements, such as the utter centrality of love in the gospel message of Christianity and its echoes in other religions, the impossibility of a coercing faith, and the concession that good deeds and lives are possible outside one's own faith community, were no doubt obscured by other elements within the traditions and by cultural and political factors entwined with them. But they were often enough stressed and followed in the lives of believers. In today's world, the movements towards mutual respect and cooperation amongst so many religions have generally been helpful factors in defusing hatreds and diminishing resorts to violence, though the record's not totally straightforward. These changes in attitudes uh, that underpin ecumenism raise a more general question of some difficulty about the evolution of religious belief and practice. There is a dynamic at work in the understanding of complex truths or belief sets that aim at truth, whereby elaboration and interpretation of them must have recourse to changing conceptual frameworks, new information and legitimate shifts in perspective. This is true of all fields of knowledge, even the most secure, such as mathematics or logic. There's every reason to believe that's true of religion and theology, and it's part of what is explored in Cardinal Newman's groundbreaking, if incomplete study, of The Development of Christian Doctrine. The process involved in such exploration must acknowledge both what was valid in earlier interpretations, but also what was invalid or downright wrong, and this is often difficult for religious authorities, or indeed ordinary believers, to cope with, since they want to hold to the integrity of the original revelation or insight that established their tradition. Sometimes they are undoubtedly moved by unworthy motives, such as the natural human desire to preserve their own power. But there's also an understandable and more respectable motive of keeping faith with earlier generations of believers in their creed, whose lives will have been shaped by those now superseded interpretations that were endorsed by the authorities at the time. There's a genuine set of dilemmas here that I will not be able to solve in the time available, or perhaps at all, and they're basic to the division between fundamentalists and their opponents within any one religious community. The fundamentalists want to minimise the role of interpretation, but they are as committed to it as anyone else, as their selective approach to the various texts and traditions in the literalist repository shows clearly. Thank you.